Good morning. We are in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. You'll have to excuse me, I'm a little under the weather, so if I start to lower my voice to somebody like this, and I'll be reminded to raise it a bit. Luke chapter 15. We're only going to cover the first ten verses as was given to me, and I there's a challenge there because it really um, proceeds on to the next portion of the scriptures that the next person will take. I don't know who, but I'll leave it to him. Favorite portion of scripture, this one is. I can remember um, speaking about it in Brazil, and a dear Irish missionary came up to me and showed me a side of the verses that I'd never seen before. So let's read the verses, then we'll go over it. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Your version might be a little different. I'm reading from the New American Standard. But the meaning's the same. He drew near. They drew near to hear. Verse 2, And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this morning. May he open up our minds to understand what he would have for us to to know about his word. Lost, lost, two things lost, a sheep and a coin. How many people have ever lost something? I think we've all lost something. And my mind goes to when when, when something would be lost in the household and my mom would say, you find it. You know, inevitably it would be lost in the garage. And our garage had lots of stuff in it, like most people's garages. And um, you're not coming in until you find it, by the way. So, you know, I, since then, I'm a, I, I know where things are. And if something's in my house, I can find it because I know how to do it. I learned that from Scripture. <laughs> but back then, I sort of looked half-heartedly. And I'd look in a cabinet here. I'd look in a cabinet there. I'd look under the workbench. I'd move this box. And pretty soon, I got tired of looking. But I was bored. So I'd walk around the garage as a little kid saying, Oh, where, oh, where could the... Be, oh, where, oh, where could it be? And I'd be walking around the garage singing to myself this silly song because I was too lazy to keep looking. I wasn't diligent in looking for that which was lost. It wasn't of value to me. I really didn't care. Not that it had that much value, but my mom wanted it, and that was important. <laughs> so, um, but when I think of losing something of value, my mind goes to one specific item. 
I, most people that know me know me. I'm not into jewelry. I'm thankful my wife isn't into jewelry either. Um, and I'll tell you why I'm not into jewelry, and it's because of the one piece of jewelry that was important to me. My dad died when I was 13, and when I was about, I want to say 16 or 17, uh, my brother wanted my dad's gold watch. And my brother had a way of getting things from my mom. And, uh, and she gave it to him, and she asked me, what would you like of your father's? And I remember, well, I remember there was this little gold ring that he used to wear on his pinky, and it had a diamond in the middle of it. It always caught my eye. But that was my dad's, and it had sentimental value. If I could have that ring, that would be important to me. And she gave it to me. And so I wore that ring, and it just it was special to me. It had sentimental value. Besides, it had real uh, monetary value as well. And then um, some, one day I got up, and it wasn't on my finger, and I thought, oh, no, I lost it. And because it had such sentimental value, it, I, I was really torn up about it. And I looked everywhere, and I couldn't find it. And I was just tore up. I mean, really tore up. And it wasn't until about, I would say, two weeks later that I found it. And um, I had a waterbed at the time back then. Waterbeds were in. And it had come off my finger at night and slipped underneath the mattress. So it was down in there. And for some reason, I was making the bed or something. I found it. And I thought, oh, wow, I found it. So what did I want to do with it after I found it? I found it because, I mean, it fell off my finger because it didn't fit as tight as it should. So I gave it back to my mom. I said, listen, can you keep this in a safe place for me? Because I don't want to lose it again, and I'm going to wait till either I grow into it or I have it sized to my finger. She goes, yeah, sure. So she put it in the safety deposit box, a safe place for me. Well, it was a couple of years later that I wanted the ring back, and it wasn't there anymore. You see, my brother wanted the ring, and she gave it to him, and he lost it. So it's nowhere to be had, nowhere to be found. And so since then, I don't want any ring other than this one. My wife, it's important because I'm married and it's important to my wife that I wear it. That makes it important to me. But that was important. That was uh, something that I lost and I really felt the loss of it. Um, I've since forgiven my brother, but uh, I don't want another ring. So um, losing something of value. These parables talk of something of value. The first two, we're not talking about um, the sinfulness of the lost. We're just talking about something lost. The first one, it was a sheep. The sheep had wandered away. Somehow, coming in at night, counting the sheep, there was one missing. Okay? Jesus was appealing to the Pharisees to something that they were well acquainted with, and that's a loss of any material possession. What would you do if you lost something of value? You'd look for it, wouldn't you? You'd be diligent about it. And it would not uh, be very easily that you'd give up the search, depending on the value. Okay. The Pharisees and the, uh, the scribes were grumbling because Jesus was eating with tax gatherers and sinners, and he was receiving them. Um, it wasn't the first time that they grumbled, was it? I mean, we, we've gone through the book of Luke up to this point, and we can see in Luke chapter 5, let's go there. Luke chapter 5, and we'll see the attitude of the Pharisees. Because I think more than, nothing, more than anything right, right here in these verses, it really shows forth the, the heart of the Pharisees, which is quite different than the heart of God. 5.17. One day he was teaching, that's Jesus, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, 
from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healings. Some of the men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Were they right? About the second part, right? (laughs) Not about the blasphemy, though. They were right, yes. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins have forgiven you, and it's hard to prove, right? But if you were to say, get up and walk, then everybody would see whether it was true or not, whether you had the power. But this is an important verse. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things. So Jesus, did he prove that he could forgive sins? He did by the miracle he did. And, and really, by extension, he proved that he was God by their own reasoning. And yet, you will see later on in the text, they continued to grumble and complain about Jesus. Why is that? Why is that? And it continues. After that, he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So, it isn't the first time they grumbled that Jesus was keeping company with sinners. Tax gatherers and sinners, right? And he asked, he, they grumbled against even his disciples. So what does that say about the Lord's disciples? If Jesus keeps company with tax gatherers and sinners, what, is his, what are his disciples going to do? They should likewise keep company with tax gatherers and sinners. But for what reason? You see a doctor walking down the corridors in a hospital, right? Is he out of place? Nothing but sick people there. To ask that question, like, why are you in a hospital full of sick people, is sort of silly, isn't it? Jesus came to save that which was lost. It stands to reason that he's going to keep company with the lost. Jesus had a marvelous way of keeping company with sinners, and yet the sin didn't stick to him. (laughs) Didn't rub off. Couldn't be contaminated or polluted by it. You know... It's amazing. I've talked to a lot of Christians through the years and, you know, suggestions come up now and then uh, that we as Christians have the liberty to do all kinds of things, you know, um, to reach the lost. We can go in bars, you know, we can go to disco dances. We can we can do all kinds of things because you know, that's where the lost are. We're just trying to reach the lost. You know, if, if, if that were the reason and we were preaching the gospel in those places, I would agree. But a lot of times more than not, um, I don't think we're there. 
necessarily to reach the lost. But to somehow blend in, somehow enjoy ourselves, somehow be accepted that even though I'm a Christian, I can have fun just like you guys. But I hold back the testimony of the Lord. And in that case, I don't think we qualify as one of the disciples are found among sinners and tax gatherers for the same reason Jesus was. It bothered the Pharisees. Why did it bother the Pharisees? Why did it bother the Pharisees? Um, We have to ask ourselves that question. Jesus addresses the fact that it bothers them. And he appeals, and, and, I, and I find it amazing that after all that the Pharisees did, and we read in Luke chapter, I think it's 11, um, how Jesus really takes the, the Pharisees and the, the, the scribes to task. It says in Luke eleven thirty seven. now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at a table. And when the Pharisee saw, saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonial washed, ceremonial, ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, now, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of you are, you are full of robbery and wickedness. So he's eaten with the Pharisees. <laughs> they noticed you didn't ceremonial wa- ceremonially wash your hands before the meal, which they did. And they're wondering at that. And Jesus points out to them that they're concerned about the exterior, and yet the in- interior could be totally contaminated. The Lord said, but you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, and the platter, but inside of you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the, also, the inside also? But give, that which is within, but give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, yet disregard justice and the love of God. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greeting in the marketplaces. See, in this chapter, they were upset that Jesus was receiving and eating with tax gatherers and sinners. Do you think that was a large crowd? It was. People were following after Jesus. And why? Because they saw in Jesus the love of God, the compassion of God, the forgiveness of God. And they needed that. They needed that. And what attitude did the Pharisees have toward the lost, toward those very same sinners? And we might ask ourselves, what is our attitude toward the lost? And I, the Lord upbraided me one time. I worked in a, a tile warehouse, and, there was, and I've been in construction for most of my life, um, one form or another, around construction workers. And they attract, um, I would say, not tax gatherers, but definitely sinners. And I could remember this guy came in and coming into the tile warehouse and he was spitting on the floor. And that's pretty revol- uh, repulsive, you know, just spitting on the floor. And it was like eight or ten times while he was in there. And when he came up to the counter, I finally, I was a little upset, you know, and um, the Lord was working on me, but I got the, the best of myself or the worst of myself when I asked him. I said, do you spit on the floors when you lay tile in people's houses? You know? And he came back with, well, I can't say it, but he came back with something even more repulsive. I mean, I couldn't say it in your presence. And I thought, how disgusting. And right then the Lord said, Eric, I died for that one. That one that you just now condemned is disgusting. I died for him. Are you showing him love? Are you showing him acceptance? 
Are you disgusted at what he does? That was a heart of a Pharisee. That was an attitude of a scribe. You know, when I can look down my nose and think of how disgusting someone else is. When I can think of what a sinner somebody else is. Because the Lord has a way of opening up my heart and making me look within and see, you want to see what sin is like? Let me show you. And, and, and look within. That's something the Pharisees weren't willing to do. You see, they were up on a high horse. And we read in Luke, I think it's chapter 18, when they even pray, Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like this sinner. The Lord said this sinner went home justified because he didn't even have the courage to look up to heaven, beat his breast, and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. The Lord said he went home justified, not the Pharisee. So we need to be, be careful that we don't have Pharisaical hearts. And we can, it can creep up in us. It can. And, and not so much all the time as looking down at those that are sinners, amongst we are as well, but the value of the Pharisees. And I, and I think that this is pointed out in the way the Lord addresses it. He starts with where they're at. And he brings them a parable that they can understand. And I'd have, I, I really wonder if there wasn't some of those Pharisees in the crowd that had lost one sheep in a hundred. <laughs> they were well off. They weren't poor. A person that has a hundred sheep, that was an indication of wealth, how much livestock you had. Uh, and if you lost one, you really felt the loss of it. And if there was a chance at going and finding it, you would certainly spare no expense and you'd leave the hundred in an open pasture Perhaps there was someone to watch them. I, it's hard for me to believe they would leave them in danger, 99 in danger, seeking the one out. I'm thinking maybe there was someone they had watching them, but they would definitely go out looking for the one. Why? Because them, to them, it was material wealth. It, it, it was worth something, right? Same thing with the coin. The coin. The coin, we have, a, uh, you know, um, a woman is brought into the picture because, because the spiritual lesson is both for men and women um, perhaps she had responsibility for household finances. She lost one-tenth of it in that coin that was lost. The coin, in and of itself, it's not a living being like the sheep. It's just a piece of metal, but valuable metal, right? She must have lost it at nighttime. She had to light a lamp to look for it. It's in darkness somewhere. Um, perhaps it's covered in dust. She swept the house to find it. You know, looked in every nook and cranny. She had to have the thought, it must be here somewhere, you know. She's taken for granted it wasn't stolen. It's just lost. And so she sweeps the house clean, looks in every nook and cranny, and she finally finds it. I think of that coin. You know, it might be covered in dirt in the darkest place in the house, but you know it has intrinsic value. In and of itself, it's worth something. And a coin you could dust off. Coin you can shine light on. And there it is, gleaming and glistening, especially if it's gold. And I'm reminded of the value of a soul before God. You know, we can get pretty filthy. We live in a world of filth. And God saves us out of a filthy past. Oftentimes in the dark, dark, darkest of darkness. But there's intrinsic value in a soul that God sees. And whether the person seems disgusting to me, he's valuable in the sight of God. Valuable in the sight of God. I'm reminded, too, about the woman sweeping the house and the fellow looking out in the pasture for, or out in the countryside for his, for his lost sheep. 
I don't think he was like me in the garage walking around, oh, where, oh, where could that lost sheep be? Oh, where? I, I'm sure he looked diligently. And the woman, by the very parable, she swept. She illuminated the house. She worked hard. You know, and, and, and I'm reminded that I can't save a soul. Only God can. But there's a part in the work that he invites me into, and you too. And it does take work. There's work and there's effort involved. Sometimes it's as simple as handing out tracts. That's work. You give up time. I used to, in Brazil, <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to be real effective in the use of my time. I had, a, you know, a couple hundred tracts, maybe a thousand tracts, and I found ways I can hand out about 500 tracts in less than an hour. And it was real effective because in Brazil, most of the people don't have cars. They ride public transportation. So you might find 200 people waiting in line for a bus at about 50 different bus stations in a city. And if you go to the terminal, you might hit a couple thousand. And nobody stops you from going up and handing a track to them. And since they're waiting for the bus anyway, you could turn around at any given time, and I guarantee more than 50% of the people are reading it right then and there. That was pretty effective, rather than house to house. But there was a laziness there, you know. Um, it's work. It's work. Sometimes the work is involved. The work involved is really getting over our fears. You know, we meet unsafe people every day. Um, I was just talking with someone yesterday. I, I, I've been working. Uh, I worked Saturday, uh, and later in the afternoon, I was talking to someone and um, about their life, and they told me that they suffer from anxiety. And it's a real problem. Uh, and I said, what's anxiety? Is that just worrying? He says, no, it's not like that. It's like, uh, it's like a concern that um, I'm not really where I should be. I'm not doing what I'd like to do, but not knowing what it is. So there's a door wide open for the gospel, right? So I, I talked about it. I said, have you ever considered that perhaps the Lord is letting you see the vanity of your pursuits, that you might perceive that, really, how can a person know the purpose for their life without knowing his creator, the one who died to save him? Yeah. So I had an opportunity to talk about the Lord. Now, I didn't need to take that opportunity, and there's many times where I failed to take the opportunity. And whether it was from laziness, whether it was from the fear of rejection, whether it was um, perhaps being ashamed of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, I have to confess I've been guilty of all those sins. And yet there's a precious soul, an eternal precious soul that might go to hell because of my laziness, because of my fear, because of my reluctance. You see? The Pharisees here, they didn't look at things that way. They're more concerned with, one, I believe, material possessions, and that's why we have it here. That was something they could relate to. They could relate to a material possession like a sheep. They could relate to a material possession like a coin. That's what they were concerned about. But they were concerned about more things. They loved the greeting in the marketplace, the respectful greetings. They loved the place of prominence. They loved to be number one. And here the Lord Jesus, he was walking on the scene, does a few miracles, and everybody's falling after him. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I'm looking from their eyes. Do you think they felt threatened? <laughs> They're not the center of attention anymore. You see, the Lord Jesus had a marvelous way. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, they complicated the law. They made all kinds of rules and regulations. 
how much work you can do on the Sabbath, what you could do, what, couldn't, what you couldn't do. Uh, in, earlier in the book, he, he, uh, he questioned them about working by grabbing some grain, rolling it in their fingers to eat it because they were hungry. And it was on a Sabbath. What are you doing work on the Sabbath? Now eating on the Sabbath is a sin, you know. It was so complicated. And, and here the Lord Jesus comes and he simplifies everything. That irked them. Now you might understand why if we put it in a different context. Let's, let's talk the IRS. IRS has pretty complicated rules, doesn't it? Matter of fact, the IRS has such complicated rules. We have a lot of professionals that are centered around the whole thing of taxes, whether it's corporate taxes, whether it's nonprofit taxes, whether it's personal income taxes, whether it's this, that, or the other thing. There's a whole entourage of professionals that make their living around how complicated the tax system is, right? So along comes somebody, and they suggest this real simple tax code that everybody can understand. What do you think those professionals are going to think about that? <laughs> what do you think about that industry that makes their money off the complexity of the system? Do you think they're going to be happy about it? I don't think so, because they're going to be out of a job. So here are these Pharisees and these Sadducees. Here Jesus, the Lord Jesus simplified everything. It's really not that hard. And people flocked to him to hear. It says that they drew near to him to hear. Why? Because he was making things simple, easy to understand. It really comes down to one thing. God loves you. And he's provided for your salvation. You need to repent. Not all these laws, books and books and rules and rules of laws. And I think to a large degree, the Pharisees of this world are responsible for many of the preconceived ideas that people have. When you ask somebody, what do you think about God? You'll get preconceived ideas. Somebody that hasn't been to church or has been to church that doesn't know the Lord. Some people think that he's a killjoy. That's why they don't want God in their life because he's just going to say, you can't do the things you like to do. That's what they think God's going to do. Some people don't want to come near to God because they think he just wants to punish me for everything I do. You know, some people think, I don't want to go to God because there's so many rules and regulations that I don't want to keep them or I can't keep them. There's a lot of preconceived ideas out there. And it's up to us that know the Lord to dispel those preconceived ideas. But we can't if we keep all to ourselves. We can't if we're not around the tax gatherers and the sinners, if we're not out amongst them. I, I was really touched this last week by my students. Um, this last four weeks, I've been teaching the last week of the third year of apprenticeship. So this is all their last class. I've had them for three years, 160 days. And during that time, besides teaching them uh, the, the trade, I've really imparted to them a love for their souls, or at least I've sought to. I've tried to be understanding, tried to be patient, and some of them see it very clearly. And um, I found a lot of gifts on my teacher's desk. You know, not a lot of words with it, but just we appreciate you, you know. And when it comes to the last day, we do a barbecue. And, you know, I like my wife's cooking, and she fixes me lunch faithfully every day, so I just assume not pay for a barbecue. But I did because they wanted me to be with them. And I haven't held back sharing Christ with them. So that, that, um, that tells me that at least they know a Christian that loves them, that cares for them. And I've just shared Christ when I've had opportunity and not pushing it down to where I get in trouble, you know. <laughs> the Lord loves the lost. He loves the lost. And the Pharisees, they didn't like that. 
They didn't like that the lost were coming to him. Who, do you else, who, who else do you think doesn't like that? There's an enemy of man's soul. Did you know that? I know, I'm sure most of you know that. It's Satan, the enemy of God, the enemy of our soul. And he is very much interested in keeping us from company with the lost, those that don't know the Lord. He does not want them to receive forgiveness of sins. He does not want them to experience the love of God because he wants to hurt God. The way he does that is by keeping those that God loves from him. And so it's sad to say we oftentimes can play into his hand. Play into his hand. Like the Pharisees, we might be more uh, concerned with other things, like material possessions, like success at the job, like what people might think of me, like the many distractions there are in life. The Pharisees weren't really concerned about the souls of individuals. They were concerned about how they look, about their position. I've sort of been given a glimpse of that in my job. I, I work for the union, so everything's highly political. <laughs> and I'm very un, unpolitical. I'm not successful at politics, don't want to be. Don't really understand it all until I put my foot in it, and then it's a mess. But what I learned is that my boss's boss, the BMST, he's the, the head of the Northern Council for Trades, yada, 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 he announced his retirement. And he was always a guy to be feared because he's a, you know, it's a political world, so it's sort of a lot of, a lot of, a lot of weird stuff goes on. But what I understand is why he's so threatened by people that come from the training area is that we're training apprentices and journeymen all year long, year in, year out. All the apprentices, all the journeymen come to us for training. So do you think we have a good rapport with the people we train? We better. Or we're not doing a good job. His position is an elected position. So anytime a person in that position has been upseated, it's been from somebody in training. Because <laughs> when they go for, for office, when they want to throw in the hat to be elected, everybody knows them. Everybody's confident. That person knows what they're talking about. They, they've taught me. And so they're really, really uh, eyes on us to make sure we're not maneuvering for any position, jockeying for some position of power. And that sort of reminds me of how the Pharisees must have looked at the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he was popular with the common person. And the common person was the masses. And they could only control the masses to a certain point. They weren't really concerned about the people. The people. And... <coughs> I think what's right, really nice about this parable is that we really see the heart of God in here. The heart of God. The Irish missionary pointed out to me, and I'm always open to hear, you know, if somebody can see another point of view from Scripture, I always balance it with Scripture to make sure it's not a weird point of view. But he shared with me that we can really see the heart of God in this chapter. The first part, the shepherd seeking after the lost. We see the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. The woman with the lost coin, he said, we can see really the heart of the Holy Spirit. Pre-conversion sanctification. Um, and the, the heart of the, the prodigal son's father, we can see the heart of the father, of the father, the Lord's father. And so, so I look at that and I see he really wasn't addressing that in this parable. He was addressing the Pharisees. 
He was addressing their attitude and their heart, even down to the last one. So there's many things you can see here. The point being is that souls are valuable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's some effort to reaching them. And what I'd like to do in closing, because this is a short message, is read uh, an account to you that you all know about, that you've all heard. And if you've ever watched it rerun in the news, you can still see the the videos. I wanted to, um, (laughs) matter of fact, I copied the video. I wanted to show it to you this morning, but it was going to take three hours to uh, format it to see it (laughs) on our screen. So uh, you'll just have to put your mind there. This happened in 2010. Many of you remember it. Um, The Chilean miners were trapped. How many do you remember? How many miners? Somebody call it out. How many miners were trapped? Do you remember? 33. 33 miners were trapped. Do you remember how deep they were trapped? I remember because it showed a picture of two Empire State buildings and they were deeper than that. Under a mountain. Do you know how long it took for them to find them alive? To realize that they were alive? For them to be down there in that darkness waiting to see if someone was going to find them. It took 17 days. 17 days before they finally found they're alive. And they sent up a note, we're all well in the shelter. And I was watching the video of seeing them emerge one by one. And the joy that you could feel as you watched the people Uh, receiving their loved ones. And it was a reminder of the lost soul that repents and the joy in heaven when they see that rescue take place. Let me read some things. And it contrasts that with something that I think might speak to us as well. Americans continue to marvel at the rescue rescue of trapped Chilean miners entombed in the collapsed San Jose mine for over 10 weeks. Now, this is written as it was going on. 33 men were trapped longer than any other miners in history. They were being rescued from a depth never tried before. Yet, Chilean officials appeared to prepare and execute the rescue smoothly and methodically. This is a very much unprecedented, this is very much unprecedented that it never has, that never have been so many people trapped for so long, so far down. While the spectacle that transfixed the world may have begun as a mining accident, there was nothing accidental about the outcome. Within hours of the August 5th mine collapse, Chile's government took over the search. The world's biggest copper producer marshaled every resource it had to find the men. Chile's response, transparent and meticulous. It took 17 days, but rescuers persisted. Against perhaps impossible odds, they found the men. Family members and officials marveled at the note the men set up. We are well in the shelter, unquote. From the moment the men were found, the Chilean government had a plan. So we have a plan, a whole support system for food, for psychological help, etc. Chile's minister of mines, Lawrence, told ABC News in the early days of the rescue, we are going to keep them alive and in good shape. It was a promise that so far rescuers had kept. With no playbook, no precedent, Chilean engineers created a system to sustain the men through a six-inch hole. Drop-down food, medicine, and even communications equipment so the men could talk to their family members. 
This is like 220 stories underground. They brought in drills used for air shafts, water wells, and oil. At the same time, Chilean naval engineers were designing the steel capsule that the men used are using to ascend to freedom. <clears throat> the Chilean health ministry devised a protocol to care for the men before, during, and after rescue. While this was a Chilean effort, the government did not hesitate to call on international expertise. A Canadian oil drill, drill operators from Nassau, a cable from Germany, so the rescue capsule wouldn't spin. Even more help came from Argentina, Spain, and South Africa. Chile's response versus the U.S. response. <coughs> the miracles that's mesmerized so many, <coughs> so many make some American experts question the United States' response to its own disasters. Chile's use of international help during the crisis is a far cry from the U.S. officials' handling of international help offered during Hurricane Katrina and the recent BP oil spill. Chile has done this much better, frankly, than we've done in the United States recently by effectively marshalling and mobilizing all resources, whether they be foreign governments or private sector organizations from all over the world. This person has studied U.S. officials' response to Hurricane Katrina, the Gulf spill, and the upper Big Branch mine explosion in West Virginia. He said, Responses to recent catastrophes on U.S. soil have been fraught with controversy and appear to many as anything but smooth and meticulous. In Chile, no time was wasted pointing fingers. The government simply took charge. In the United States, that's difficult to do. Former FEMA Director Mike Brown said that bureaucracy in the United States sometimes hurts the relief and rescue efforts during a catastrophe. The unions are concerned because they want to be able to show whether there were problems in mine safety, Brown said. The mine owners are concerned because they want to show they were doing everything. The regulators' oversight committee wants to show that they were doing everything. So everybody's jockeying for position at this point. Brown said that the competing interests Interest forces agencies and organizations into a defensive position. Instead of being on the defensive, Brown said U.S. officials need to focus on their immediate mission. And that was an illustration to me. In Chile, all resources focused. Any help provided was accepted. And they went about it methodically, meticulously. And as a result what we would have nev never have guessed. I, I didn't expect them to come out alive. And I was watching it. I was paying close attention. But the sight of them coming out was a marvelous thing. To see families reunited. To see the, the seeming impossible done. And of course it was the hand of God that was there. And the people when they came out, they gave thanks to God. They certainly did. Uh, one of the fellows said, I'd been with God and I'd been with the devil and God won. And I knew he would. And I think of the contrast with Katrina and these other things. And I'm not here to criticize the, 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 the uh, offices that we have and the organs we have for help. But if we're jockeying for position, if we're on the defensive, if we're worrying about this and worry about that, how much of our effort is taken away from the mission? You know, the Lord reached down farther than two Empire State Building's depth. He reached down into a darker place than that mine. And he rescued us over greater, impossible odds. Only something he could do. And there's one thing he's asking us to do. <laughs> Spread the news. <laughs> Spread the news. Have people as your number one passion in this life. Because everything else is going to fail. 
And when we, when we arrive on those shores, the only thing that we'll want to see, first, the Lord Jesus Christ, and two, the friends that we help get there by sharing the news. That's why we're here. Let us never forget that. Let us remind one another. Let us work diligently to seek the lost. Because that's the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful so much that the message isn't difficult. It's not incomprehensible. It's not too hard. It's just hear and believe. We do pray that we might be renewed, Lord, in our mission. Lord, that we might have a passion for the lost. A passion that drives us to speak out. That drives us to do special acts of kindness. To drive us to look diligently for the lost in any way that we might. And we pray that we might be in touch with your spirit as he guides us. And we do pray that you would use us, that we might be a beacon on a hill, that our light might shine because the Lord Jesus Christ is in our midst. Lord, we ask it in his name.